this morning to Hebrews 11. I want to read a portion of the first six verses. Now faith, it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Look at verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his testimony, or before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, help us today to begin really thinking through the foundations of our Christian life for why we do what we do. Help us to realize, Lord, the world sees life so differently than we do. They look at life as, as a means of getting rich. It's all about getting the most out of it. You only get one, they say. Maximize happiness. That's the world we live in. Lord, that's why we have such an upside-down, topsy-turvy world where people will grieve as they should. They will grieve the deaths of children in a school and completely ignore the fact that millions are being slaughtered in abortion clinics. It just doesn't make any sense. But it's because of worldviews, Lord. It's because it's the way they see life. Help us to see life as you see it. We must have this, Lord. The temptation is to see life as the world does. To look at life through its lens. And to only see what it wants us to see. That's the deceptive life. That's the devil's lie. Lord, we need to see life as you see it. As the first step toward an eternality toward an everlasting life that is with you. Vernon, this week, took that step. He, he's the one actually alive much more than we are. And though we reflect on his life at a ceremony, we talk about death. The truth is, he's the one who's alive. He's the one who's in your light. He's the one who can see you as you are. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. And all we have here, Lord, is the temporary. It's the now. Or as my pastor used to say, Lord, it's the nasty now and now. It's all, it's all that we have. Sometimes, like characters in Pilgrim's Progress, we, we are the muckraker. We just are rearranging the dirt in this world. Help us to flee to the celestial city. 
Help us to come to Christ and then run to him and walk with him and be the pilgrim on a pilgrim pathway as this passage talks about. Help us to see the worldview of these witnesses and to have it ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. On January 13th, 1982, Arland Williams, a Citadel graduate, who boarded uh, Air Florida Flight 90 in Washington, D.C. He was 47 years old, and all of his friends called him Chubb. President Ronald Reagan later said of Arland Williams, quote, there is one name that always comes to mind whenever I think of the Citadel, one that appears in no military histories. Its owner won no glory on the field of battle. Why honor a military man who won no military victories? Why would a U.S. president speak of a man like that? It's because on that day in 1982, Arlen Williams survived the crash of Flight 90 into the Potomac River. Do, you, do some of you remember that? You have to be of a certain age, I understand. What you may not know about Arlen Williams is of the, he was one of the five survivors, and of the five survivors, when the rescue crews got there, there were people standing on the banks. There was so much ice in the water, the water was so cold, people trying to swim out to the airplane that was half submerged into the river. They couldn't get there. They had to turn back. It was just too dangerous. The five were clinging to the back of this airplane, and the rescue crews came down, and the rescue guy gave Arlen Williams a rope, and the very first thing he did was he passed it to somebody else. And then he did it again. When they finally got to him, he had drowned in the river. His name, his reputation, well, he's now a hero. His story is inspirational. So, why would a middle-aged bank examiner, unassuming, maybe a little withdrawn in his personality, why would he give up his life for complete strangers? Why would he die so they could live? It's interesting, by the way, according to experts who studied this crash and survivor stories, Williams made five separate decisions to rescue others before himself. Why would he do that? This is something that modern man grapples to answer. And I'm going to tell you, they haven't yet come up with a satisfactory answer. Maybe you're not aware. Uh, philosophers have been working on this problem for centuries. English political philosopher Jeremy Bentham was born in 1748. I told you it goes back a long time. He argued that morality, it's determined. That's right versus wrong. Right and wrong is determined by that which creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Now I'm going to give you a big word. Don't be scared. This is called utilitarianism. That's an eight-syllable word, and I'm going to tell you 
every single preaching manual made never use an eight-syllable word. You, I know, about half of you, I just lost. It's really not that difficult. It's a big word with a really simple understanding, a very simple meaning. So don't be scared of it, all right? Utilitarianism, here's what Bentham wrote in 1776. And that number, that date kind of sticks in my head, right? You know, we know what's going on in 1776. Here's what Bentham wrote. The greatest happiness of the greatest number, that is the measurement of right and wrong. That was Bentham's standard. And that might seem to explain why a man might give up his life so that others might live. Because his view of morality would be better that five should live and one should die than all six perish. I mean, I guess that makes a little bit of sense. And, and maybe this kind of fits with its utilitarianism's cousin, pragmatism. Uh, you know, if it all kind of works out at the end, then it was a good thing. But even if you think this way, I don't think most people would do what Arlen Williams did. I think the guy sends down the rope, most people grab the rope. In fact, the people he gave the rope to didn't hand it back. They, they gladly got the rope and got out of it. Utilitarianism only works when the individual making more moral decisions is in the happy group. If it's the greatest number of happy people, right? If that's what my goal is, if that's how I determine right and wrong, then I need to be in the happy group. I don't want to be in the sad group. Or it doesn't really work for me. If I'm not the person being made happy, then why would I give up my life for someone else? I want you to think about it this way. If the other people who survived were in Williams' family, then it would make sense. I mean, if this was dad and he handed the rope off to his wife and then he handed the rope off to his children, wouldn't that make sense? We'd all go, okay, yeah, he gave up his life for his family. And, but, but nobody would know Arthur Williams' name if he did that. A lot of people have given up their lives for family members. He died for complete strangers. You know, it took some time, maybe even weeks, to even figure out this man's name. They had to consult flight manifests. They had to do autopsies. It, it took some time to figure out who Arlen Williams even was. The people he rescued didn't even know him. That's what made his sacrifice so special. It was anonymous. No one even knew his name. And yet this is what he did. He gave up his life for five perfect strangers. And my friends, that's something on an entirely different level. I, by the way, if I still have you, if I haven't completely lost you by this point. Without going into detail, let me just add here, something I'll address later in this series, is that Bentham's utilitarianism, greatest good for the greatest number, what makes most people happy, it kind of struggles under the weight of evolutionary theory, right? Because in evolutionary theory, the core idea is that the fittest have to survive. And, and if Williams is sacrificial enough to give up his life for the other five, shouldn't he have been the one who survived? I mean, he seems to be the one who had the best character. And so really, mankind, his philosophy really does struggle. Most people in America believe in evolution, but most people in America also believe in utilitarianism, even if they couldn't spell it. The point I'm making here is that the reason, there is a reason why Williams would give up his life for strangers. I think it's instinctively because he knew, first, that life is valuable. And second, because each of us has a moral duty 
to protect the lives of others. That is something they kind of ingrain in you in military uh, life. Life is valuable. Each of us has a moral duty to protect others. The concept of moral duty is ingrained and built in. It presupposes that there is a God and that he created the universe and that he created man specifically in his own image. And my friends, that is what Jeremy Bentham was arguing against. You see, Jeremy Bentham was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And the problem of utilitarianism is it refuses to look at life through a theistic lens. It doesn't acknowledge the existence of God. Bentham, along with all who follow with him into modern thinking, a modern secular worldview, this is how our neighbors think. This is how uh, uh, America thinks. This idea, it refuses to see right and wrong on the basis of God's standard of righteousness as revealed in the Bible. No, man, secular worldviews believe that morality is based on making people feel happy rather than feeling sad. If it makes a person happy, it's good. If it makes them sad, then it's bad. My friends, this is why people mourn mass shootings, which are terrible. We should mourn them. But even Christians, they will mourn a mass shooting and not give a passing thought that all of these babies are being murdered in abortion clinics. My friends, that makes no sense. If you see life through God's lens, then you see that those little babies being slaughtered, that's murder. That's what we would be mourning. The millions who have died versus the few, even though we still mourn their deaths. The worldview of secular society puts a premium on happiness. First for oneself, and if possible, then for the greatest number of people after self. So, as, uh, I, you know, uh, say it this way. I want you to be happy. I need to be happy first. I really do want you to be happy. I have to be happy first. I mean, I really, really do want you to be happy. But I, I come first. That's the secular worldview. And we live in a society that is secular and that it generally rejects the existence of God. I, I believe this is why... I have noticed over the years, our outreach efforts have become more difficult. If I tell a person, run and flee from the wrath of God, let me tell you, 20 years ago, I might have a conversation today that would just ignore me. They don't even believe in God. They don't even believe in God's wrath. There's, there's no hell except for the worst of people, right? I mean, the Adolf Hitlers of the world. That would now be the entire Republican Party. That's a, that's an aside. Uh, no, the Adolf Hitlers of the world, right? The Adolf Hitlers of the world, they deserve the lowest hell. But everybody else, they deserve heaven. That's not God's word. And so what I want to do, here's what I want to do. I want to, you to come to a realization that life is absurd without God. Christian philosopher William Lane Craig teaches at Viola, some other places. He actually has 
a, a lecture, the absurdity of life without God. And here's what he says. I, I think it's really good. He says, without God, there is no meaning. That life has no consequence at all. That man is just a doomed race in a dying universe. That because man ends in nothing, he is nothing. He says, not only has life no meaning, he means there's no value to life. He says, yes, utility cannot explain right versus wrong because it becomes subjective. In other words, whatever I think is right is right. Whatever I think is wrong is wrong. That there is no objective standard to right and wrong. It's all subjective. That ultimately then, life has no purpose. We're just living in the oblivion. There's no real truth. And that behavior is only explained psychologically as man as a sexual being, or sociologically as a man as a product of his environment, or biologically, man is just a complex machine of various organic parts. So Craig concludes that the atheistic worldview tries to solve life's problems by realization that the world is terrible and we just have to learn to deal with it. I mean, life's bad. Sorry. Maybe we can make it a little better. And that life is absurd, so you might as well just love. And can I tell you, at least for those of you still with me and not drifted off to sleep, praise God, none of that's true. Things like right versus wrong and life's purpose and the reason for our behavior, how we interact with other people, all of these are explained in the Bible. It's all here. And I would say this, I can make sense of nearly everything, at least on a simplistic level. There might be things that are difficult to explain. Suffering can be hard to explain, but I can explain it at least on a simplistic level. One of the places that this is found, that this worldview is on display, is right here in this incredible sermon we call the book of Hebrews. It's found in Hebrews 11. Some people call it the Hall of Faith. And they kind of focus on this list of people. I call these people the witnesses. And the reason I call them the witnesses, you, you know, in a court of law, you bring people up and they sit on the stand, they raise their right hand, and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? And then the lawyers come and they question them. And then they answer. They're the witness. They're sitting on the witness stand. That's what these people are doing. They are testifying of something. In fact, in Hebrews 12, one chapter over, the first verse, they're called witnesses. These witnesses, they have a worldview. And it's one that is still valid today. So I want to call this series, it's six sermons, called The Worldview of the Witnesses. And the worldview, in my opinion, begins this way. With a fundamental observation, there is a God. All of my beliefs, my friends, all of my beliefs, all of my judgments, my own determination of right and wrong begins with this fundamental point, God is. This is what worldview scholar James Sire calls the real, real. What's really real? Well, it has to begin with God. It's the foundational principle to every biblical worldview. In fact, this is how Genesis begins. It begins with an assumption. In the beginning, God created. That's not an assumption. That's a statement. What's the assumption? That there was a God to create it all. It begins with this assumption. 
in the beginning, there was God. And that's where the writer of Hebrews begins. If you go back to the very first verse of the first chapter, what's his assumption? Here's how it reads in Greek. In different times and in different ways, the God spoke. There you have it. The God. He's the subject of the sentence. And this assumption begins. And everything you think about life, ladies and gentlemen, everything must begin with this one fundamental fact. The fundamental fact that the preacher of Hebrews preached as he spoke of the excellence of Christ. The believers promised rest. Jesus as the great high priest. The danger of apostasy. That Jesus is greater than others. That there is a new covenant, a new agreement, better and more excellent than the old. All of this is founded on this one idea. Something you must believe. Everything as a Christian begins here that there is a God. It all begins there. You must believe this. Which is why he says, number one, you must approach God by faith. It is impossible to approach God any other way. He says here in verse 6, do you see the very first sentence? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. I want you to notice the two restrictions here. Do you see them? The first is an adverb. It's the word without. But without faith. There is a restriction. You have to have faith. Without it, you, you can't please God. So the first restriction means apart from. This is the only way the preacher argues. There's only one path. There's only one way. It's impossible. All the other paths are wrong. All the other ways are wrong. One way. That's it. One way. My neighbor stood on my porch a few years ago, and he looked at my light bulb, and he said, what color is your light bulb? And he said, it's white. Kind of white. It's got a bunch of bugs up there. i got to clean that, but it's white. <laughs> he said, uh, I say it's blue. Do you tell me it's not blue? And I said, well, you can believe it's blue. It's white. And he says, see, you see, Matt, what I'm trying to tell you is uh, uh, what you say is the way to God. Someone else sees it another way to God. And I said, you're looking at it all wrong. You're looking at it from man's perspective of God. But God doesn't start there. He always starts with God's perspective of himself. If you, if you look at all these other paths as ways to God, then you're being deceived because God says there's one way. Without faith, it is impossible. Without, that's the first. The second is an adjective. Impossible literally means no strength. It's the, it's the negation, ah, in front of the word power. There is no power. There's no strength. It cannot be done. It's, it's like you standing in front of a Mack truck and saying to, to your wife, hey, can you move that five feet? I want to park my car here. He's a little back into my parking space. You know, and she leans on it and pushes. She's never going to move that thing. She doesn't have enough strength. You don't have enough strength. An army of people may not be able to move that truck. It's heavy. It weighs tons. Can't do it. It's impossible. The preacher says here, it is impossible that without faith, it's impossible what to please him. So approaching God is restricted to faith. God will not recognize any other means. This is what pleases him. 
It's actually the idea of being gratified. Only faith pleases him. This common term for conviction of something that is true or assurance that it can be trusted. That's what pleases God. When you believe him, or I would say it this way, and this is my definition of faith, it is a right response to what God has revealed. Now, I'm going to explain that more later as we go along in this series, but I want you to understand, that's my working definition. And if you want a perfect example of this, look no further than the life of Enoch. You see it in verse 5, by faith. Remember, Enoch, you can't please God without faith. Well, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was one who walked with God. He was born in a world of unbelief. Okay, very interesting. You you have after Adam, you have Cain and Abel. You probably know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then along comes Seth. Enoch is in the line of Seth. He is one of Seth's, he's like his great, 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 great grandson. Okay? Cain, he has children too. It's very interesting. If you read the line of Cain, you come to Lamech. He is seventh, the seventh generation from Adam. He had multiple wives in verse 19, and he killed another man, even though it was in self-defense in verse 23. This is back in Genesis uh, chapter 5 or 6. I'm sorry, chapter chapter 4. No, it's chapter 5. It's all on the top of my head here. But Enoch was born into a family of believers. Cain, Cain's line are unbelievers. Enoch's line, Seth's line are believers. He's also the seventh from Adam. So you have Adam, and you have going through Cain, the seventh out here, you get Lamech. You get unbelief, you get falsehood, you get a guy killing somebody else. You, you get multiple wives. You've got all sorts of weird problems over here. What do you get when you come this way? You get a guy who walked with God. Realizing, friends, that when the writer of Genesis, Moses, he talks about walking with God, he means a life of faith. He's not talking about a legalism. He's talking about a life of faith. It is, as one notes, the exemplification of faith. This is faith. To walk with God. And his relationship with God was so close. He communed with him. He was one who pleased the Lord. He, he actually talked to God. And that concept is in both Testaments. You see it in people like Abraham and Samuel and David. And you read about it even in Paul. Walk in the Spirit. Throughout all of human history, those who are God's Walk with him. They commune with him. And that is now he was one with whom God pleased to dwell. I won't focus on the fact that he was translated. It's a secondary idea here. I just want you to understand that he was so close to God that God said, you're coming to be with me. It really is amazing. Enoch's life of faith. Now, Friends, this is why all other attempts at approaching God always fall short. This is why. God is not pleased with other attempts to justify yourself. To be good enough 
is not enough. Life is not about weighing my bad with my good, trying to have more good than bad. We're not good enough for that. In fact, violating even the least of God's laws makes us incurably bad. Jeremiah said the heart is sick unto death. It's desperately sick. It's wicked. It's why Paul argues in Romans 3 that everyone has sinned and come short or fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why God is not pleased with other religions or religious practices. Even being a Baptist doesn't make you a Christian. It is having faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. The religions that denigrate biblical truth about Jesus, His person, His deity, His saving work are worthless when it comes to approaching or pleasing God. Religions put forth a false God that would be filled with natural beauty or even solemn or beautiful practices. They are worthless when it comes to approaching or pleasing God because the only way you can come to God is through faith. It's all about faith in God. Faith in Jesus, that's biblical faith. It's the only way to come to God. Now, if you agree with me that you must approach God by faith, then it brings us to a second important idea. That is faith. In order to be saving faith, needs two necessary elements. This is point number two. You must have these two necessary elements of genuine faith. You must believe God exists. Look again at verse six. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. This is an existential argument. That is, God exists. Existential. Exists. The preacher says, you must believe in the existence of God. There's no object connected to the word is. He's not saying you must believe that God is love, or you must believe that God is faithful, or you must believe that God is good, or great, or anything. He's saying you must believe God is. That's a viewpoint the preacher of Hebrews expects you to supply. God is. He exists. And that's the view. The existence of God is foundation of true faith. I think this existence argument is being given back in verse 3. We're going to look at that next week, or in two weeks rather. He's talking about the creation of the universe. The only way to explain why people in this chapter do some very strange things is because they believe God exists. Why would you build a boat when it's never rained before in the middle of a wilderness. That makes no sense. Why would you leave your home and go 500 some miles away? This is before cars. Why would you go some 500 miles away and just live in a new place where there are a bunch of other people who claim it as their own and you say, well, this is the land God has given me. Why would you leave a palace? Why would you leave a palace to join yourself up with a whole bunch of slaves. Well, Moses did that. You see, all these people did it because first they believe God exists. This is the worldview of the witnesses. Noah, reject, Noah rejected his secular culture. They didn't believe it could rain or flood. Abraham rejected his idolatrous culture. Moses rejected the pleasures of palace life because they believed in a biblical God. 
the one who is. My friends, this is what we say about Jehovah. He is the self-existing God. That's what his name means. And this is what we think of when we think of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, not only must you believe that God exists, but there's a second idea here. You must believe in his perfect character in order to approach him, that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think this is what happens with people when they have saving faith. When someone comes to salvation in God, in Jesus, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, and their entire faith is resting on that alone. When, when that occurs, ultimately what they're doing is believing God rewards those who seek him. God pays wages. That's righteousness for those who trust in him. Abraham believed God and it was accounted for righteousness to him. It was put in his account, righteousness, because he believed God. This is before the law was even given. He wasn't following rules. He believed in God and walked with God. The idea of seeking God is the idea of searching for the God and it's always successful if you really want to know him. Because it's the only way to respond to God. This is what he says of himself. And I think people who seek for God have to have a positive conviction of God's goodness. God is a great God. He made everything. It says that in verse 3. But he is a good God. It says in verse 11 that he was a faithful God. See what Sarah said. She judged him faithful who had promised. He's a faithful God. He's a good God. It's not simply that I believe God exists. The deists believe God exists. That was our founding fathers. By the way. They, they thought God was the great clock winder. Back when you had to wind a clock before Apple came along, you know. They actually had to wind their clocks up. God was the great clock winder. He, he created the world, the universe. He just, like a clock winder, he started everything, he wound that clock up, and then he just let it go. That's what they believed. That's not saving faith. This is what's wrong with intelligent design. I'm going to tell you, I'd rather have you, I would rather have you be an evolutionist than believe in intelligent design. Let me tell you why. Because intelligent design gives you the idea of something good when it's really something really horrible. Because it isn't intelligent design, it's God design. And if you, if you look at the world and you say, man, something did all of this, you're only halfway home. You have to, by faith, believe that he framed the worlds. That they were framed by the word of God. And, and I'll even tolerate at least a little bit people who will debate the first few chapters of Genesis in terms of it's, is it a poem or not. I, I take those first 11 chapters of Genesis very literally. There are others who are creationists who, who look at it a little differently. Okay, They still believe in the Bible. They just read it differently. I'm, I'm willing to tolerate some of that. But if you come back and you say, well, it's just something up there, then that's not the God of the Bible. It's the belief that the God who exists is a good God. This is what separates true from false faith. There is a false faith that believes in the existence of God. Can you think of people or beings 
that believe in the existence of God, yet do not have saving faith? What does James say in James chapter 2, verse 19? The demons believe and tremble. They believe in God, but they don't believe in the goodness of God. They don't believe in the righteousness of God. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They believe he exists, but they will not bow to him. This is true faith because it focuses on God's righteous nature, that God is a good God, that God is a great God. And when man sees God for who he is, that he exists and that he is good, it is a short step later to say, this is what he's done for me through Jesus. Now we're going to notice that later in this series. I need to end this, but I want you to understand how this all works. If you don't believe in an existing God, then you've fallen short. There's a guy who teaches over at the University of North Carolina. He calls himself agnostic. He says he doesn't know. And I think of him, and I think you do know. He went to Moody Bible College, Chicago. His undergraduate degree is from Moody. Moody's an evangelical school. If you go to Moody today, they'll teach you the Bible is the word of God. <laughs> Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose from the dead. They will teach you basically what we teach here. That's what he learned there. One day he was in a graduate class at Princeton University, and he was writing a paper on the Gospel of Mark. And at the bottom of the paper, the teacher wrote this little thing, a little phrase. He said, maybe Mark was wrong. And that unraveled what wasn't real faith in this man's heart. And today he stands up and says, I don't know. And my friends, I sit there and say, I do know. You say, how do you know? Because this is what the Bible says. There is a God. There is a God. And everything begins there. Let's pray. Lord, help us over the next couple of months to develop a biblical worldview. To see life as you see it. Not to see life as man sees it, because he's wrong. To see life as you see it. So help us, Lord, to do that, I pray. Help us to see life through your lens and to recognize that you, God, you have revealed yourself and that you have made promises in your revelation and that we can hope in those promises for eternal life and that we can live life now on the basis of those promises. Lord, that's what life is. Help us to see it and help us to know it. Before I finish praying, I, I don't know that there's a good application for this in terms of do you believe it or not. I hope you do. If you don't, then you're not saved. But here's what I want you to do in your heart in this, in this moment of quiet. What I want you to do is I want you to ask God to root out of your heart any false view of him. That, that's what we need because we live in this cesspool of the world, we're being told all the time lies that come from the devil. And what we need is a clear view of God. So would you just take this moment and you say, God, give me a clear view of who you are. Help me to have a biblical, a right worldview.
Now, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you haven't accepted salvation by grace through faith alone, alone, not on anything you're doing, only on what he did. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here to say, Pastor, I don't know Jesus. He's not my Lord and Savior. I'd love to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand? I'll pray for you. Anybody like that at all? I'd be glad to pray for you. You don't know Jesus. You say, I need to know him. I need to trust in him alone. Lord, I pray that you would use this series of sermons to help us see life. Thank you for the word. It, it's so important. And, and I pray, Lord, that through this summer, we'd come out different people. Thank you for these witnesses who did some incredible things, some amazing things, because they believed in you. Maybe we can do similar things in our generation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation right now. Seal it in your heart. Lord, I want to have a clear view of you this summer. <laughs>